Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. My dad works in B2B marketing. He came by my school for career day and said he was a big ROAS man. Then he told everyone how much he loved calculating his return on ad spend. My friends still laugh at me to this day. Not everyone gets B2B, but with LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people who do. Get $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash generate to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash generate. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. You're listening to Yeah, That's Probably an Ad. It's the Adweek podcast where we talk about advertising, marketing, pop culture, media, technology, because in the end, just about everything is an ad for something else. Uh, I'm David Greiner. I'm an editor with adweek.com. And with me today, as always, we've got Tim Nudd, our creative editor. Tim, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, David. Uh, this time around, we've also got Lauren Johnson, a staff writer covering technology. Lauren, how are you today? Hey, David. And first time podcast appearance by one of our other technology reporters, Marty Swant. How are you today, Marty? I'm doing well, David. Great. Thank you for joining us. Uh, today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about a bit of news, uh, namely on the technology front, some new offerings from Google uh, that Marty and Lauren are going to be, I'm sure, more than excited to weigh in on. Uh, we're also going to talk about ads worth watching this week and our Young Influentials issue, which came out this week, which has some of the most influential people in marketing, media, technology under the age of 40. So before we get to that, I uh, wanted to go over one bit of news that's a, made this kind of a somber week for us here at Adweek. Uh, this week, uh, this past weekend, we lost uh, one of our, our longest uh, running uh, staff writers, Noreen O'Leary, who had been with Adweek since 1985. Uh, she was still with us. And uh, unfortunately, she lost her battle to cancer uh, at age 59. Uh, so as I said, she's been with us for 31 years. She joined in 1985. And it's been... You know, one thing that's made this week a little easier uh, for us is just the the massive outpouring of support and respect that we've seen, not just from her colleagues, from peers, from people who used to work at Adweek, but from the people she covered. Noreen was a very tenacious reporter, very uh, tough but fair, and uh, just a, a fascinating person and, and a really incredible writer. It was a real pleasure for all of us to work with her. Uh, real quick, before we talk personally about some of our reflections, I did want to spend a little time just kind of sharing some of our thoughts about Noreen. And, uh, but first, I want to read a few of the statements we got from uh, Advertising's Big Three Holding Companies. Uh, we got a uh, comment uh, of condolence from 
all three of the CEOs of these uh, very powerful, very major companies, uh, which, you know, is fascinating because Noreen was certainly never easy on them. She always uh, kept them on the ropes uh, throughout her, her 31 years at Adweek. Uh, John Wren from Omnicom said, in an industry without many giants, uh, she will be remembered as one and as a very nice person. Uh, Martin Sorrell from WPP said, a consummate professional and a lovely person, scrupulously fair, detailed, dedicated, and accurate. And then Maurice Levy from Publicis said, the industry as a whole is losing a great talent. Uh, she will be missed. Uh, Tim, you've been in this industry longer than, than any of us, and I feel like this is a tremendous rarity to hear this kind of, of response from the industry. Yeah, I mean, it really is. And it speaks to Noreen's, uh, you know, work ethic as well as her personality. Um, you know, when I wrote my first Adweek story, which was hard to believe it was in 97, um, Noreen had already been at the magazine for 12 years and she had already written so many great agency stories. And, you know, I learned a lot from her. Every new reporter, it seems like even uh, the guys who've, who've just been here for a year or two um, seem to have stories about how they'd been on, they went, they were on the phone with Noreen for you know, an hour or two when they first started and just, you know, she had such a great nose for news. Her feature stories were amazing. And, you know, when you cover a trade like advertising, you deal with the same people over and over and it can be difficult to, um, you know, bury the hatchet if you have a problem with, you know, if you, if you have to report negatively on some of these people. Um, and I think those quotes that you just said kind of speak to how, how well she was able to ride that line between, you know, being tough but fair on people. And, you know, she was just such a great person to be around, too. Um, you know, Barbara Lippert, uh, Adweek's uh, former advertising critic, um, wrote about uh, Noreen on Facebook this week. Um, she said she called her a very clever, delightful person and a generous friend uh, with an enviable sense of style and a rueful sense of humor, which I thought captured Noreen pretty well. And the, you know, almost 200 comments underneath Barbara's post um, was it was amazing to read through and just see how many people um, she affected in, in her life as, as, as an advertising journalist. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it's been a, t a really sad week for us. Uh, one other thing that's been um, a bit of a salve during this time, too, is just going back and looking over some of Noreen's work. Um, David, I know you went to the library and, and grabbed the issue um, that in which her famous uh, David Ogilvy feature appeared back in 92. So we have that up online now. And, uh, you know, I read through it again yesterday. And, you know, she just had a great way of kind of tackling the real issues of business with such an, um, uh, a lovely s sort of literary style. Um, so if you guys haven't read that, that's well worth going back and reading. She also actually, in 99, wrote David Ogilvy's obituary, which is also available on adweek.com. And uh, I actually worked on a long story with her in 2005 about uh, YNR and sort of the troubles that YNR had gotten itself into in the 90s and into the early 2000s. Um, and it was such an amazing process to work on her, uh, work on that story with her. Um, it was, a, I think it ran about 16 pages in the magazine. It was cr crazy long and it was really exhausting uh, to edit and, and to work, you know, it was exhausting for her to write it. And it took weeks of editing and, and in in that sort of stressful in editing environment, she was um, just so friendly and so welcoming. And, and she just, every question I had for her, she uh, would would go back and thoroughly answer it, whether it was, you know, 10 o'clock at night on deadline night. I mean, she was just so committed to the story and getting it right, um, but also just being a really good person along the way. So, you know, it's really not an understatement to say that 
the industry and the magazine really lost a legendary person this week. It was uh, really fascinating going back and reading that David Ogilvy profile, uh, which, as you mentioned, had not been available in uh, in our digital archives. It was from '92 and just kind of fell in the cracks uh, between the the kind of the digital archiving process. But I really, and this is not just self promotional to Adweek, I, I really feel like it should be required reading. Uh, for everyone in advertising, for everyone coming into advertising, because a big point of the article uh, is this, you know, that he was at this crossroads. Ogilvy was at this moment of shifting industries. And, and I thought about that a lot, thinking about Noreen, that we have the advertising industry has gone through these waves, through these kind of transitions of, you, you know, the old school madman era and then transitioning to this kind of creative revolution. And Ogilvy really had a lot to say about that transition, what was getting lost, uh, what value there was in some of the newer models of the really creative-focused agencies versus the, the selling-focused agencies. And he really predicted we would return back to the selling model, which is something I think we're seeing with programmatic and with a lot of the, the technology, the ad tech side. Just an amazing story. So uh, you, know, you can honestly just look up uh, David Ogilvy feature uh, on Adweek, and I'm sure you will find it. It was uh, really a delight to resurrect that and and to spend some time reading it and really thinking about all the effort that Noreen put into that. We, we could spend this whole hour talking about Noreen. I, I'm going to move on just because we've got a lot of other stuff to talk about, but I did want to just uh, touch on that and just thank everyone out there who has uh, given us really kind words of warmth and support. It means a lot. And this Saturday will be her uh, her memorial services. Uh, I will be up there in, in Albany, New York, and really looking forward to hearing even more stories uh, about Noreen. So uh, thank you, Tim, for sharing those memories. And thank you to everyone who uh, who has reached out to us uh, this week. It's, it's really meant a lot. I uh, want to move on to some news in the industry. Uh, really, I feel like, uh, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like the biggest story of the of this past week was Google unveiling not just one new device, not not two, but just a whole slew of them. Uh, and just a, you know, a really fascinating kind of philosophical thread tying these all together is that the CEO of Google said, we're evolving from a mobile first to an AI first world. Marty, you covered this. Tell us a little what, about what he means about that and, and walk us through some of these devices. Sure. Yeah, it was definitely a big day for Google. Uh, it was teased out last month uh, with a spot uh, that just said October 4th, and it had a search bar essentially evolving into the shape of a phone. Um, which actually ended up becoming a spot for yesterday as well from Droga 5. But uh, it was it was interesting to see the way that AI went front and center. Obviously, it's not new territory for Google, um, but you get to see how tangible artificial intelligence can really be to everyone's life. Uh, and those devices kind of showed that um, with the phone itself, Pixel, which is Google's first self-branded smartphone, which it uh, created along with uh, HTC, which I think was the manufacturer, kind of just like how Apple uses Foxconn. You've got you know the phone, then which connects with the Google Home, which is going to be more like a, an Amazon Echo competitor, um, slightly cheaper, I guess you could say, than uh, than the full Echo, but um, which allows you to speak into it to get everything from ordering flowers to um, getting a daily briefing for your schedule, which it might pick up from your phone, um, uh, to the uh, to the VR, I guess as well. Um, Google debuted its Google View, which is uh, a way cheaper version than. Um, let's say Oculus or HTC Vive, um, because it's it's seventy nine dollars, uh, which is actually even slightly cheaper than Samsung's Gear VR. Um, so it it just really shows how there's this AI thread that goes throughout, and and in a way it kind of reminds me of um, 
Apple is known for integrating its devices. It's one of the things that I think hooks people because you get the MacBook, you get the iPhone, you get the watch, and those things work seamlessly. But in a way, this seems for the first time, this might be Google's play into that as well, but through the, the form of AI. So tell us about the Pixel. You seem personally very excited about this. Uh, of course, it comes out about two days after I finally got around to ordering a new iPhone to replace my busted one. So I, I'm out of the loop on this uh, and, and kind of missed my boat. But tell me about the Pixel and, and what makes it something that could actually unseat Apple's dominance. Yeah, so actually I'm pretty excited about the Pixel. Um, it's about the same price point as the new iPhone 7. Uh, I've been actually holding off on buying one or the other until this came out. Uh, but it's, it's, I think it's like $679 or something like that. Uh, Camera-wise, it's actually pretty impressive. Uh, there's an, an external company that did a rating on the camera that, that Google actually touted uh, yesterday. It was an 89, which is the highest score ever for a camera. Uh, it doesn't have the dual cameras like uh, you know the new iPhone has. It doesn't have the additional optical zoom like the iPhone has. But uh, apparently, quality overall, it's supposed to be better. Um, well, even even think, those uh, even those features are only available, I, I believe, on the iPhone Plus, right? So you'd need to go yeah you'd need to go all the way up to like the the almost thousand dollar model to get those features on the on the Apple. Yeah, definitely. And so especially if you're going to do like a monthly model, it, this is $29 a month, which makes it definitely more accessible, just like the iPhone. I think the other thing, too, is just when you have AI built into it, um, that was one thing that was touted as well. Um, just to kind of delineate on that for a quick second, Google mentioned how um, much that's improved. So you can actually use it with your photos as well. So let's say you're looking for a photo from back last October, you can say, you know, okay, Google, show me a photo of so-and-so from last October, and it'll be able to apparently pull that up. Um, so it could be a really great way of having to not scroll constantly through your photos. And I think the other interesting thing, too, with photos is um, uh, Google's actually giving everyone free, unlimited uh, Google Cloud storage uh, for phones and also all their video. Um, which is definitely a perk, I mean, because I think with Apple that costs about like $130 a year if you're going to do the, uh, I think it's like the one terabyte model. So that's definitely an added plus. Lauren, you've been covering, uh, you've been covering AI for a while and you've also, I I believe I may have heard uh, an Amazon Echo at your desk uh, (laughs) the other day. I think it was deafeningly loud. Um, Tell me, you know, about your experience with the Echo and whether you see there being a lot of potential for Google Home. Um, Yeah. So kind of, you know, regardless of my initial missteps with the with Alexa, um, I think she. I think it's great. I think I've really gotten into the habit. Um, I have both the the full blown uh, Echo as well as the Tap. So, and the the Tap is different, um, just in the sense that you know it it basically streams music and plays music. I'm a little. I use. I will say I've used the uh, full blown Alexa a little bit more, and it's fairly easy to get into the habit of you know this idea that she it's constantly on in your home to some degree, and you can kind of either wake it up or um, turn it down just by saying you know Alexa do whatever. I think the primary thing that I've used it so far so far, uh, which kind of you know, really gets into this whole idea of like how the tech companies are going to control your home uh, is through music. So Alexa has and Amazon Echo has all these different partnerships with Pandora and Spotify. So being able to kind of kick the music on pretty easily and and toggle between stations and artists and that sort of thing really shows you, you know, the potential of what 
of what these companies are really trying to do with the home market, in my opinion. Well, one of the things I personally was most excited about, and maybe this just shows what a what a, a, a dorky homeowner I am, is that uh, actually I'm, I'm really excited about the Google Wi-Fi. Uh, so this their new Wi-Fi router. I think they had been doing some again, kind of like Marty was talking about. They've been doing some in partnership with with other hardware creators, uh, but I believe this kind of a first of a a truly Google branded Wi-Fi uh, router, and it's an expandable system. So basically, you can get a single one for 129 bucks, uh, or you can get a three pack if you have kind of a large home or a big area uh, for about 300 bucks. So you can get three of them. And they not just kind of boost each other, they're not just signal boosters, but they have this thing called mesh Wi-Fi uh, that lets them kind of sync up in a way that, according to Google, has only really been available in commercial Wi-Fi up until now. Uh, so as someone who has kind of a funky house layout uh, that has not always lended itself to uh, easy Wi-Fi setup, I'm actually pretty excited about this one. And also just finding a reliable router has always been very difficult. And I think I've gone through every possible brand manufacturer without ever finding a great one. So I'm looking forward to trying that out. Uh, Tim, do you think you're going to try out any of these? Well, you know, I also just ordered the iPhone 7 uh, a few weeks ago. So I, I now have that, which was quite the upgrade from my iPhone 5. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm open to, you know, for some reason, a year or two ago, I also got the Google Chromecast instead of the Apple TV. So I'm sort of caught between these Google and Apple uh, ecosystems a little bit. Uh, but, you know, Google, obviously, despite the Google Glass um, sort of debacle, uh, they still have, clearly they have uh, en enormous resources. And, and uh, you know, you would think that whatever they come out with is probably going to be sort of structurally sound and, and, and pretty cutting edge. So I would certainly, I mean, I have another, I have a house that um, also where the Wi-Fi is sort of very, very spotty and difficult to set up a, a system that works. Um, it's sort of a a minor miracle that you can hear me right now, actually, because I'm up in my office, which is quite a ways from my router. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the Google, the Wi-Fi thing sounds interesting. Uh, I think I'm going to, uh, since I obviously have the, uh, you know, I have the iPhone, I'm not going to try the Pixel, but I, I'm very curious to hear how it goes. And, and uh, you know, Google obviously has challenges um, becoming a hardware producer, you know, all the distribution challenges and the, these issues that, um, you know, marketers like Samsung and Apple have already are years ahead of them on. It should be interesting to see how all that plays out too, I think. To be honest, I think the thing that I'm most excited about is is the view. Um, I think it was a, you know, in a way, it, this has the potential to make VR go a lot more mainstream. I mean, Google's been messing around with the cardboard, which a lot of brands have used um, to self-brand and pass those out at different events, sort of mail those. But uh, the, the $79 level for those who actually end up getting the Pixel is, is huge because it comes with the remote too, which allows it to be a lot more interactive um, than, let's say, the, the Samsung Gear VR. Um, and almost too, I mean, I haven't tried it myself yet, but I mean, the Oculus, you need a PC or um, same with HTC Vive. And so it makes it a lot more accessible. Um, and they're coming on with 50 different uh, content partners by the end of the year. Um, they teased out a, a new Harry Potter game, actually, that they built with uh, Warner Brothers for the new Harry Potter movie, which <laughs> makes everyone's Wizarding World uh, dreams a reality. Um, but they're also bringing on uh, Hulu, HBO, The New York Times. Um, and so for the majority of the country and the majority of the world that hasn't tried VR yet, this could be a great chance to um, see the potential of it. And uh, the device itself is actually seemingly a lot more comfy because it's made with um, like a fabric, almost like a, 
like a t-shirt, I guess. And they call it soft and cozy yesterday. Um, they described it as that. And so I'm, I'm really curious to see what the other, you know, 48, 49 content partners are going to be. But, um, I'm pretty bullish personally on VR. So I'm really curious about that. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I was thinking yesterday about how, how dramatically the VR kind of competitive portfolio has changed over the last year. You know, if you had asked me a year ago, who's going to dominate in 2016 when these VR devices finally come out, you know, Oculus seemed like the obvious safe answer. I think Palmer Lucky has kind of personally damaged that brand a bit uh, recently with some bad news around him, but also just the hardware requirements, as you mentioned, the device are so extreme and so niche that, you know, it's just a real kind of a, a struggle to get the equipment you need to even use it. Uh, and I think the HTC Vive will always also be kind of niche. And so you, you've, in fact, kind of had these two emerging players, the Google View and uh, I would guess the Sony PlayStation VR, uh, which comes out shortly. I think those two are going to end up dominating. I mean, that's not the most wild guess, uh, but we'll see. I think, as you mentioned, a $79 VR headset from Google that looks comfortable, probably feels comfortable. I think that's a good option uh, for the the more casual user, and I think the more intense gamers uh, will really uh, stick to the, uh, at least who are on the PlayStation platform, will stick to the PlayStation VR, which looks like a great setup. Just a really fun industry to watch. It's been really kind of fascinating seeing how it evolves, although I do feel for people who are plunking down the money to buy this stuff when you are, you're really gambling uh, about which one's going to be the best fit for the long term. I think the big question up until now has been almost a chicken and the egg kind of thing. You know, is it going to come first with content or will devices become more ubiquitous? Um, and I think now that we're seeing more content roll out, I think they do seem to be coming in tandem. And one thing that reminds me of that is a few weeks ago, this is going to sound super nerdy, but some friends and I were at a bar uh, like on Friday night and, um, and uh, we were watching this VR documentary actually uh, that a friend had recently created. And, um, and someone at a table over saw us using the Samsung Gear VR headset and they wanted to try it out. And so they put it on and watched this documentary, Clouds of Cedra, which is about the Syrian refugee girl um, in a Jordanian camp, a refugee camp. And uh, the guy had never tried VR. He thought he was going to be watching that roller coaster uh, game, like simulation. But seven minutes later, he took it off and he was crying. And um, he was so moved by that VR experience that uh, he just, you know, it, to me, it kind of had the emotional appeal that you don't, you see with a good movie, but you don't necessarily think of when you think of something as like nerdy as VR. Um, so I'm really curious to see what content partners will do with that. Well, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the news. Uh, we're going to have a lot more for Lauren and Marty to join us in discussing. But for now, I want to switch back to Tim for my favorite part of the show each week, the ads worth watching. Tim, what were some uh, ads that were actually worth giving your time to this week? So the first one I want to talk about is this French campaign uh, on Instagram that um, one of our ad freak writers, Angela Natividad, broke late last week, uh, which is pretty fascinating. Essentially, the uh, the Paris agency, BETC, created a fake Instagram account. Uh, I think a lot of you have probably seen this already. Uh, It was a woman named Louise Delage. And this woman, uh, the agency, sort of on her behalf, posted you know, a bunch of selfies every day, two or three times a day. Uh, this started in, in early August, and it went through late September. And this woman, Louise, sort of seemed to have the perfect life. She was, all, these photos showed her, you know, traveling, hanging out on boats. She was constantly at parties. And uh, sh- she followed other people, uh, a lot of influencers in particular, and she used a ton of hashtags. And 
the combination of you know her photos and her following strategies kind of led to you know within about six weeks she had a following of about 16,000 people which was kind of amazing uh, but it turned out she wasn't actually a real person which was which was sort of the whole uh, the crazy reveal of this thing so uh, basically uh, in every photo or almost every photo Louise is seen uh, holding a drink and it turned out the entire account uh, was part of this elaborate PSA uh, about young people abusing alcohol and the agency I think it was in late September um, they, they posted a, a video to Louise's account explaining this whole thing to her followers that they'd been following this account uh, that was basically the campaign was called uh, like my addiction and it was uh, a sort of an attempt to show people how hard it can be to spot addiction in someone who whose life otherwise seems uh, healthy and happy so pretty devious uh, you know certainly a, a kind of controversial this you know this kind of marketing c can be seen I think as spammy um, inserting yourself in into you know someone's social feed um, disingenuously is a little bit weird but what, what I liked about it is it was done really really well and if you look at most of the reaction to it uh, you know may, I think maybe a few of the followers felt a bit used by it but um, it was so clever and so well done um, that it's been pretty widely celebrated and the craft was amazing the photos look great uh, and in fact the the creative chief over at BETC Stefan Ziberas um, spoke to Angela for our story quite a bit about the backstory behind it and there was some pretty robust research and strategy that went into this thing. So uh, if you guys haven't seen it, um, you can just Google uh, Adweek Louise and it'll come right up. And it's one. It's actually been one of our uh, most read stories of the year. I think it's got about half a million page views already on our site in about a week, which is pretty remarkable. Um, so I think that's a pretty special piece of creative. Um, did you guys, what did you guys think of that one? I think it's brilliant. I think um, the whole idea, you know, we all at this point know that at least a good chunk of the influencers and um, celebrities on on Instagram is such a it's such a fake platform. Like no nothing on there is so is so called authentic nowadays. And the idea that you would just naturally be at all of these parties and post these gorgeous pictures is something that you've come to expect, but it's not. It's not real. So finding some kind of like interesting way to tie that back to um, a cause like they did is, is super interesting to me. I think it was a, a brilliant campaign. Yeah, that's interesting. Like the whole fakeness of the platform is mirrored in the in the literally fake person uh, kind of using it. I, I think to me, to me, it felt like it, it, it all came down to the execution. I think you mentioned that the quality of the photos, the organic nature of the photos, they were, you know, not to say organic in, in the, the most believable way, but in that slightly artificial way that, that, that the best Instagrammers already, already are, you know, they already kind of look a bit uh, art directed. And I think they, you know, props to the agency for really nailing that balance of they, I, I would have totally thought those were legit, but at the same time, I would, I would have thought they were really excellently framed uh, photos too. Yeah. And, and, you know, the other thing about this campaign is I, I'm not sure if you actually followed Louise before the reveal, if you would have known, that, you know, that, that this was a, a marketing campaign at all. I think Stefan said that a few people did. Uh, sort of questioned her who who is this person she doesn't really seem real um, but you know this idea that you don't know and then and then it's revealed I think a lot of the efficacy of a campaign like this is in the reveal and, and the, the campaign gets shared and like 
you know, hundreds of times more people than were ever exposed to Louise during the campaign uh, come up come upon it in case studies or stories like ours. And that's that's really where the campaign has its impact is it gets people to think maybe about, well, who in my feed might might seem to, to have, you know, such a great life, but maybe hiding something. You know, it was a pretty clever, uh, clever way to get that message across, I think. I, I think one thing that really kind of hit me, too, and this is probably just a product of my age being in my late 30s. I, I feel like I'm at this point where a lot of my friends, I mean, not a lot, but a, a, a noticeable number of my friends are going into recovery. Uh, and they are people who I would consider very social, social drinkers, not problem drinkers, uh, at least from the public perception. And almost each time that's happened, they are... You know, you have everyone has friends, right, that are always posting pictures with, you know, with a bottle of wine and like, here's my plan for the night, you know, kind of a thing. And uh, and so I don't think it's consistent that, you know, it's not a one to one, but it has been interesting to, to see several of my friends kind of recognizing that they do have a problem. And I have to admit to the point of this campaign, I would never have looked at them and thought that that person might have an issue. And, and I still don't necessarily understand exactly what you can do to you know, kind of intervene in any way that's not going to be super invasive and weird. Um, but, but I think just raising the issue is, and, and they obviously did it in a very effective way. Yeah. And Stefan, at the end of our, at the end of our story told Angela, uh, his quote was, uh, sometimes it seems like in this era, the more people stage their ideal life on social media, the more that serves to hide a not so ideal reality. And I thought that was an interesting way to put it. Well, what else uh, is worth watching that's maybe a little little less of a downer? What else you got? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Dollar Shave Club has new ads out this week, which are pretty funny. Um, Gabe Beltrone wrote them up uh, for our ad of the day feature uh, on Tuesday. So this work was actually done in-house. So, um, Dollar Shave Club does a lot of their ads in-house. And uh, the brand has a new line of shower gels. And so what this campaign does is kind of make fun of competitors like Old Spice and Axe and how those brands promise to make you you know, manly or at least like in touch with your masculinity. Um, and, you know, Old Spice and Axe, their marketing styles have become sort of cliche and, and they're very recognizable. So when a brand like Dollar Shave Club makes fun of them, it's pretty clear what they're doing. I mean, one of the ads has a red, big red bottle that looks, you know, it's clearly supposed to be an Old Spice bottle. Um, so what happens in the ads is um, guys come into a store and they're looking to buy shower gel and they go into the aisle and they sort of check out the competitor product and then suddenly a typical user of those products appears. So in one ad, it's like this ridiculous kind of roided out bodybuilder. In another ad, it's like the super suave slash embarrassing guy sort of straight out of a nightclub. And the message of the ads is, you know, you should just be you. You shouldn't be uh, this version of a man that these other brands are trying to get you to be. So they're quite funny, um, but there there's a couple of I- ironies here too. So ripping on Old Spice um, from Dollar Shave Club point of view is pretty ironic because Dollar Shave is this, is the brand that whose first ad back in 2012 was was a pretty direct ripoff of the Old Spice ads, and it sort of turned Dollar Shave Club into what it what it's become is this giant brand. Uh, and the second irony is that ripping on Axe is a little weird because Axe is, is owned by Unilever and Unilever um, recently bought Dollar Shave Club. Oh, I, I didn't even think about billion, that. For a billion dollars. So here you have a brand that, you know, on the one hand is making fun of a style of advertising that helped make it really successful. And then on the other hand is poking fun at another brand that that became a sibling because of that success. So there's the ads are funny, but there's, there's definitely some sort of pretzel-like... Uh, behind the scenes uh, ironies going on here. Marty, uh, I feel like you're not 
in the the typical vein of an axe guy or an old spice guy how did how did this spot work on you i mean i'm so macho (laughs) (laughs) oh sorry we we just we didn't all mean to laugh so heavily (laughs) um you know I i think for me one of the things that um stuck out is yeah like i think a lot of these products almost have a stereotypical user now um and I guess for me, when I'm looking for things uh, to buy, let's say for shower gel, I'm not necessarily thinking about how it shapes my uh, identity per se. Um, but but it is interesting to think about like how that might be perceived, you know. Um, and so uh, it definitely makes me want to buy the Dollar Shave version. Um, I've never tried it. Uh, I usually stick to uh, uh, like the Dove one. Otherwise, there's like the Everyman Jack, whatever it's called. But um, I'm definitely going to give this one a try. Um, I don't know why, but just watching it made me curious about that so i think it also raises this kind of bigger question of whether dollar shape club can even be a challenger brand anymore now that they're owned by unilever um i think they probably can uh because no one really is that aware of the ownership structures behind these brands but it's a little it's probably going to be a little bit harder than it used to be to to pretend that they're this sort of scrappy upstart when they were sold for a billion dollars a couple months ago and Tim, I'm going to give you 10 seconds to tell us what Amazon is doing to promote the Echo. <laughs> well, that's not going to work, but uh, you're, you're, he's saying that because the, the, Amazon has made uh, more than 100 10-second commercials, and they're just starting to roll out now, and they're actually for the Echo, which we, we mentioned earlier, the in-home smart hub um, with the AI Alexa that you can talk to. So apparently Alexa has about 3,000 capabilities. I don't know exactly what that means, but you can ask her to do different things, and they're, they're adding uh, more capabilities every day that are actually tied into other brands. Uh, so what Amazon has done is instead of doing 30-second spots, although they did one 30-second spot f- for Echo this week, uh, but what they're doing in addition to that TV spot is this pretty amazing extensive uh, online campaign where they, they've made... Uh, more than a hundred of these 10 second vignettes and you get you get a little sort of mini scene and then the person in the scene asks or tells Alexa something that's that's somehow related to what's going on so in one for ins- for example you have a guy looking at his tattoo in a mirror and he's sort of nervously asking Alexa he says Alexa how do you spell eternal and, it, and as she starts to spell it he sort of gets this panicked look and you you sort of piece together what's happened and they're pretty fun. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's definitely great for short attention span online placements, I would say. Um, and it's actually a bit reminiscent of something Widening Kennedy actually did a few years ago for Target, where they did a bunch of 15-second spots. Uh, they eventually, I think, did about 150 of these, where they, they also had these little uh, vignettes with a visual punchline at the end, um, where some, some product sold at Target was a solution to the, to the story that was presented. Um, but I like them. I, I don't know if they're quite as well done as what Wyden did for Target, but they're they're pretty fun. And I think um, as a way to promote uh, the Echo, it's perfect because that's you know you do ask uh, Alexa things in like you know five seconds related to something you're doing, which everything taking place in ten seconds is a great a great way to frame it. And I think in the online placements, it'll it'll work really well for them. I think the timing is great too with. Uh you know, with, with Google's uh, Google Home coming out in, in November, it's a good preemptive blitz on Echo's part to get more more of those out there. I mean, there are already like three million, I think, in the market, but the timing's pretty great on that. Let's listen to oh, uh, let's listen to a few of those, and uh, we'll we'll play three of them back to back here since they're a, a, a mere ten seconds long. Mom, look what I found! Oh, the- Alexa, Wikipedia poison oak. 
Poison oak is a woody vine that can cause rashes. Aren't they pretty? <sighs> Alexa, how many minutes are in 18 years? There are 9,460,800 minutes in 18 years. Alexa, how do you spell eternal? Eternal is spelled E-T-E-R-N-A-L. Alexa, where's the nearest tattoo removal? So, Lauren, not to uh, position you once again as our Amazon Echo expert, but do you think this is a good idea to kind of capture some of the little things that people may just, it, it feels like the biggest question with Echo is like, what would I do with it? What could I use it for? Does this help address that? Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, the whole point of Echo is the more um, the more you use it, the more she learns about you, the more you know what types of things you can ask from it. So things like, I'm not entirely clear, I guess, how this partnership they have with BMW uh, fits into Alexa, but that it's certainly something that I didn't didn't know about beforehand or the idea that you can order things. Obviously, obviously you can order things, but kind of, you know, what specifically since it is owned by Amazon, but kind of what specifically you can do with it. Um, those types of like tips and, and small things, there's kind of a, you know, encyclopedia of different things you can do with it. And the more, the more they can kind of promote those small little things in life, I think the more it's going to appeal to uh, a wide group of consumers. Yeah. Apparently um, you can say, Alexa, uh, ask BMW if my windows are rolled up. And she'll be able to tell, she'll talk to your BMW and then tell you whether they are. And the same with how, how much fuel do I have in the car and is the car locked? So that's it's what cool. the BMW connected thing is. And they're doing, um, they're actually announcing new partnerships with CNBC, with Consumer Reports, with CNN and with Quora. So they're adding, you know, new capabilities all the time. And it, it, I think it really does kind of show how things can be start to become connected even when you're not in like an ecosystem of a brand. It's very easy to to cast your the thing you bought on Google Play over to your Chromecast, but when Amazon is talking to CNN, is talking to BMW, then you start to realize that um, this kind of collaboration w within a, a home hub could be pretty fruitful for consumers. Well, great. Uh, Tim, thank you, as always, for rounding up the ads. Actually worth watching. You can check out all those on adweek.com, and be sure to check out our creative blog that Tim runs, AdFreak, uh, that you can get to from adweek.com. We're going to move on to our weekly big topic of discussion. This week, we're talking about our Young Influentials annual list. Uh, these are, I believe there were 40 of them. Uh, they are 40 under 40. Uh, the biggest players in the kind of media technology, it's, it's a really nice cross-section TV stars, uh, but it's not just your kind of typical expected list of the, you know, the most influential players in these spaces. I'm always really fascinated to see who makes the list each year. Uh, and our cover this year is actually one of my favorite covers uh, of the year it was Donald Glover, creator of the uh, FX series Atlanta. He's also the star. You may know him as Childish Gambino or the guy from Community. I mean, Donald Glover is just one of those uh, really tremendously multi-talented uh, people. He was a, a sounds like a real blast to talk to uh, for our cover story, uh, and and a really excellent pick. And I'll be I'll be uh, I have not gotten to check out Atlanta yet, but I really want to since I live about two hours away from Atlanta from the real one. So I'm curious to to hear it. Uh, Lauren and Marty each wrote a few of our profiles uh, this week uh, for the list, so I'll be uh, asking them to talk a little bit more about some of those folks. I wanted to mention a few in passing. We've got Nick Bell, the VP of content at Snapchat, uh, which I think was a really interesting pick and not a person you necessarily hear mentioned quite as much as Evan Spiegel. 
Uh, you've Michael Dubin, uh, the founder of Dollar Shave Club, again, uh, at 38, has already sold his company to Unilever for a billion dollars. Uh, and then you've got some uh, some ones who I think were really interesting, but really a perfect fit for this. Marty, let's talk about the Duffer Brothers, uh, who were behind one of the year's biggest hits. Uh, what was that? And tell us about what, what they're like. The Stranger Things, uh, which I'm sure a lot of people have already seen. <laughs> it's actually the first show I've ever binge watched since I think the OC a decade ago. So, <laughs> um, so I, I was a fan. Um, unfortunately, I didn't get to talk to them. Uh, they have apparently are busy uh, with uh, season two, which was just announced um, about a month ago or so. So uh, they weren't available for an interview. But um, as I was researching and, and, and doing some emailing about this, one of the things I think is interesting is they pitched this to about 15 different networks until they finally landed with Netflix. Um, so it's a, it's a good tried and true example of uh, don't give up when you get one rejection. Um, and so I think that was interesting. And it really hit on this cultural intersection of, you know, this, these, this 80s throwback, but also this resurgence of sci-fi. Um, it seemed to me almost like a mixture of the Goonies and the X-Files. Um, and, uh, but yeah, they just seem to have hit on something that uh, really resonated with a lot of people. Um, uh, different charts had them at the top of, you know, like social media mentions, and uh, I can't remember exactly how many million offhand. Uh, watched it in the first month, but it was one of the most viewed um, Netflix shows, I think, this year in terms of the first month. So uh, they definitely, uh, and the kids in the, in the show, too, were all really loved. And um, I know that they were at, uh, was it the Oscars that just happened? Oh, the um, Emmys. Right. <laughs> the Emmys, that's right, yeah. Uh, so they were at the Emmys. Um, they didn't win an Emmy, but they were all there hanging out. And so uh, handing out peanut been, butter and jelly sandwiches. Exactly. <laughs> peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And so, uh, yeah, so they um, I'm really excited to see what they're going to do in the next season. Hey, what's fascinating to me about the Duffer Brothers is they are 32, I believe, uh, and, and were basically born in the, you know, in the time period that the, the Stranger Things takes place in. So it's not like they are recapturing their own youth. In fact, they are recapturing my youth and Tim's youth, you know, that kind of era. But they're coming at it from an experience of not having lived it. And so, you know, I, I think that's a really fascinating thing. You're seeing this kind of return to 80s culture pop up in all sorts of places. I think we're going to be talking about it a lot more when Ready Player One finally uh, comes to theaters because that's a central theme of that book. Uh, thank you for loaning me your copy again, Marty. And uh, the... You know, this this kind of glorification of 80s culture and being a simpler time and, and a time that kids could really get out and explore, maybe safe, you would say kind of more safely, but then I like how these shows always and Goonies and everything always really highlight that it wasn't safe, uh, but that kids were more capable than a lot of people think. Uh, so I think the Duffer Brothers were a great pick, and I'm very excited to see what they do, not only with season two, but kind of where they go from here. Uh, Marty, tell us a little bit about, too, about Andrew Bosworth. He's the VP of Ads and Business Platforms at Facebook. Again, not a name you hear thrown around very much. Yeah, uh, Andrew Bosworth, who uh, everybody knows as Boz. Um, so, yeah, he's uh, definitely been a, a, he's a, definitely a powerful person at uh, Facebook in the sense of just he has a lot of influence. He was actually Mark Zuckerberg's t TA back at Harvard um, for, um, for an artificial intelligence class that they were in. Um, and so uh, there, uh, his history with uh, Zuck goes back a long ways. Um, it's interesting, too, because a few years ago, um, he actually essentially headed up uh, Facebook's foray into mobile advertising. Um, Mark had asked Andrew to come up with a plan, and um, they had a plan within, uh, I don't remember how many months, but it's now a, 
a major, it's about 85% of Facebook's overall revenue. And so uh, Bosworth is definitely at the center of that. Um, but it's interesting, when, when talking with him a few weeks ago, um, he, uh, he definitely downplayed Facebook's size. He still thinks of them as a small player in advertising. Um, but just how, what he's doing over ads, but also over AI, they're integrating more you know, places and um, they're just trying to better bring together these mobile experiences. And, and Bosworth has been the, the center of that. Lauren, you wrote about uh, a company that I'm always fascinated to learn more about, which is Imgur, the, the image and GIF hosting service. Uh, and you wrote about Laurel Hodge, their creator for direct, uh, creator, director of creative strategy. Uh, tell me what kind of creative strategy Imgur has. I always think of it as basically just a big depository of images. What are they doing creatively? So from my understanding, what they kind of offer brands is to, is to take that trove of um, things that people are sharing, like we're talking about, that data that they have on their users and kind of repackage it in a way to say to advertisers, here's what people are talking about um, on Imgur. Here's the stuff that's going, you know, that's kind of blowing up and going viral. And so I think it's, she, Laurel has a really interesting job in the sense that, that that is her job. She kind of scours uh, Imgur to look for all of those kind of interesting nuances that an advertiser may not know about. And then obviously the challenge is to kind of present that to a brand like eBay or SoFi and say, you know, this, this is a real thing that people are doing on our platform. This is really resonating with people. And this is something that you got to kind of catch on with and, and incorporate into your ads, whether that's a GIF, a video, a meme, um, all, of, all of those types of things. And so it, she, I think she has a really interesting job, to be honest. And Lauren, can I make a confession to you? Um, this may get a little personal, but okay. <laughs> I I don't know what Micmac is, and you uh, you profiled the founder of Micmac, Rachel Tippograph. What is Micmac, and what what do they do, and and how embarrassed should I be that I don't know what that is? <laughs> um, so yes, Rachel did create a company called Micmac a couple of years ago. That's a mobile video company. She comes from uh, a lot of experience at Gap beforehand. And when I was talking to her, I think what I picked up on that kind of led her to create Micmac uh, a couple of years ago that was super interesting is that she was always under the belief that e-commerce um, sites like Gap should function and kind of feel more like a Snapchat or a Netflix type of experience versus an Amazon where it's all about, you know, basically finding what you want to buy and checking out and kind of streamlining the actual kind of, you know, to be honest, kind of boring behind the scenes types of stuff, whereas like shopping should be fun. Um, so that that's kind of what led her to create the app a couple of years ago. And she's gotten a lot of big brands to buy in on it. I mean, I think, you know, Mondelez has done quite a bit of work. Um, Kate Spade did some stuff and with them. And it's kind of it's, it's an interesting way to shop and to kind of present these like 30 second mini commercials um, is kind of what she calls them, where she works with a brand to create a short clip. That's then um, totally shoppable. Uh, so it's kind of an interesting play on, you know, the idea of the what the modern day infomercial looks like. All right. I feel like I generally understand what they are now, so I can at least fake it in conversation next time they come up. 
Uh, thank you both for for talking about the some of the folks you interviewed. I wish we had time to talk about all 40 because they are is a really fantastic list. Uh, so for those of you who have not read it, definitely uh, check out Young Influentials 2016 uh, on adweek.com. And uh, the whole list is really fascinating, and you never know. You might find someone you know. Uh, that's it for our big discussion this week. Uh, don't forget, you can email us anytime. We are sitting just lonely most days, staring at the inbox, hoping someone will say hi. We are at podcast at adweek.com. That's podcast at adweek.com. And who knows, maybe we'll read your question or your note uh, for our panel on an upcoming episode. Uh, speaking of which, we've got the uh, annual hot list. Voting is underway on our site and we want to hear your opinions. This, What this is, is the hot list every year is um, kind of the hottest of everything in three different categories, uh, digital, television, and magazines. And so we have two lists. Uh, we have our list of the reader's poll choices, uh, which you can uh, get to on adweek.com right now. It's uh, pretty prominently featured on the homepage, or you can just look for Adweek Hot List 2016 and you can vote in each of these categories across just a huge range of different uh, kind of uh, award categories within each of those. Uh, so be sure to check those out. Cast your votes. You can vote every day uh, between now and I believe the end of October. So uh, definitely do so. We love hearing what people decide. But then also on the side, we create our own list, uh, which is the editor's picks. And we are already hard at work on those lists, uh, trying not to pay too close attention to the readers' uh, votes because we like just coming up with our favorites and then seeing how they contrast with those that our readers pick. Uh, so be looking for those in November for the final announcement. But for now, definitely go to adweek.com, uh, find the hot list, and vote away uh, because you can vote every day. And I'm sure your favorite TV shows and apps and personalities will appreciate that. We've also got our annual LA issue coming out very soon, so keep an eye out for that. It's always fun to hear what our friends on the West Coast are up to. Uh, LA has really been an emerging creative scene. They have done a great job of recruiting away a lot of New York's best talent and luring them to the sun and the lack of garbage and all the other fun aspects of Los Angeles. So uh, it's a great read every year, so be sure to look out for our LA issue. That's it for this week. Uh, thank you so much to our panel, uh, to Lauren, to Marty, Tim. Thank you for joining us. I'm David Greiner, and uh, it's been a pleasure having you. Our theme music is by Home, and this week's episode was edited by Kevin Eck. Thank you, Kevin. Uh, please take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Uh, those reviews mean a lot to us, and they help new people discover the podcast. And uh, don't forget, you can reach us at podcast at adweek.com. We will talk to you next week. Take care. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just the thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.